in Him. So Lord, would you bless the local churches in our community so long as they are faithful to your word. God, we pray you'd bless Belmont Assembly of God and City Lights and New Life, and Bethany Baptist and Midwest and Good News Bible Church and Legacy and Cross Culture and Oh, God, just all the churches in our neighborhood. Father, may they be faithful to you. May we be faithful to you. And God, may your church, united God, um, be able to, to share and spread the hope that we have in Jesus. And so, God, do this work, we pray, in this community, this northwest side of Chicago that we love so much, Lord. Father, we confess our need for you this morning. God, we confess how how hard life can get sometimes and how distracting it is. And, and God, we confess our sins, God. Some of us, and we just acknowledge this today, that this week we haven't paid much thought about you. God, we've been the God of our own lives. God, we say we're sorry, Lord. Forgive us. And God, thank you for the hope that we have, though, today, because as we sang, we are forgiven at the foot of the cross and accepted not based on our works, but based on Jesus and his work. And so, Lord, as we hear your word now, we don't sit here condemned if we're followers of Jesus. But we sit here as those who are forgiven and called then to live lives of surrender to you. So, Lord, I pray that the message that I preached today would lead toward that conclusion, God. That all of us would leave today inspired in our love for you, reminded of, of your goodness in our lives. And God, I pray that we just leave God just encouraged, God. Maybe rebuked if we need that. Healed, God. But be glorified, we pray, Lord. We know that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, God, with humility and with trembling, we open that word and say, God, poke our hearts and speak to us. I pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, on Tuesday, June 6, 1944, we know this day as D-Day. It's a momentous day in the history of the world, quite frankly. It's the day when the Allied forces stormed Normandy Beach in France to retake land that had been occupied by German forces. It was a strategic event. In fact, as I was studying it this this week, I noticed that D-Day took about seven months or more to plan. About seven months. And it was planned so strategically that they even looked and studied the moon and the way it affected the tide so they could have the right covering when they stormed the beach. And according to their studies, there were only two days every month that had the right tide for them to storm the beach and repossess the land. And in fact, the day that they had initially planned, weather wasn't cooperating, which means they had to wait for the next day. And if weather didn't cooperate, they'd have to wait another month until those two days rose up again. It was a strategic time because they knew it was not only strategic, from a weather standpoint, but it was strategic from a militaristic standpoint. The German forces had begun to occupy much of Europe, and things were looking pretty bleak. 
And if the Allies weren't able to take Normandy, who knows what would have happened. An estimated 10,000 Allied troops died on those beaches. Can you imagine? 10,000. It took them six days before they were able to take control of the beaches that they had set out to control. Heroes indeed. Heroes indeed. It was an important moment, so important that actually from that day forward, we speak of D-Day as a momentous occasion in our lives, don't we? Maybe the day that you've got to make a large decision whether or not to leave your job or go to a certain school or some sort of decision in life, oftentimes metaphorically now is called D-Day. This is D-Day for you. And what happens now is because we understand the importance of the original D-Day, other D-Days, are try, we try to show that they're an important thing in comparison to other days in our lives. You know, it's true that when it comes to our own spiritual lives, all of us are confronted with a kind of D-Day where the enemy, Satan, and our sinful flesh has occupied our lives And the shores of our soul, there, there is a battle. And we've got to come to a decision, what are we going to do? Are we going to put it all on the line to do what's right and follow Jesus? Or are we going to, in fear or through deception, allow our lives to go a different trajectory, which ultimately will lead to our destruction? Today we come to the final message in our series in the book of Joshua. And we've learned about what it means to be strong and courageous. But today in this message, in the last chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua looks at God's people. And in so many words, he tells them, it's D-Day for you. You've got to make a choice today. Joshua speaks words that many of us have in our houses right now. He speaks words that have echoed in every home since then. And he says, choose this day whom you will serve. That's the question he puts out to them. And as chapter 24 unfolds, he tells them it's D-Day. And as we look today on this book of Joshua and on this final chapter, please understand that in so many ways, God stands at the shores of your heart saying, whom are you going to serve today? A battle will ensue, war will be had, but what side are you going to be on? It's D-Day for all of us. And we know that when these choices to follow God and put our faith in Jesus and honor God with our lives, we we recognize that these choices have implications on the way we live our life. We we recognize that it it affects how we relate to people, our friendships, our friendships. Our, our, our romantic relationships, our work ethic, the way, we co- the way we conduct ourselves at school, how we live our lives is affected by the choice we make whether or not to follow the God of the Bible. Today we're going to take a look at what's needed to make that choice and how God calls us to do that and what he starts to expose and reveal in our own soul. And I suspect, as was the case with me, and is still the case, as we open God's word, we're going to start seeing things in our own hearts, and we're saying, God, I, I really need you. But, but not in such a way that says, I'm, I'm going to need you today, but not tomorrow, but saying, God, I need you desperately for the sake of my soul and for all of eternity. What we're going to see is that God's goodness and his grace towards you demands a response from you. 
His grace towards you demands a response from you. I pray that this D-Day, if you will, will call a response and say, God, I, I need you today. And I want you today. So would you meet me in the book of Joshua chapter 24? Joshua chapter 24. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible. And we are in the last chapter of that book. God told Joshua as the book started, be strong and courageous. 24 chapters later, we see Joshua standing there with a heart of gratitude, saying, man, God, God's been faithful and he, he helped me be strong and courageous. Joshua wasn't like a firework that shot up to the sky, exploded and was very impressive and then fizzled out, never to be seen again. He's a man who said, I am going to put my foot down to follow the Lord. And at this speech comes not long before his death. Joshua died at 110 years old. I hope that one day I can look back in my life and say I was faithful. I wasn't a mere firework. But I surrendered my life entirely to the Lord. Joshua stands before God's people in chapter 24. And we see in verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Joshua starts out with a history lesson. And we saw last week that getting historical is very important in life. History provides a warning about things to avoid and it provides a weapon of how we move forward in life. And the weapon that we have through Jesus is the hope of God. That Jesus died for us. And here Joshua again gets historical. And, and it's through God. And God is saying, hey, remember that long time ago, your father Abraham. You remember that song, Father Abraham had many sons? Any sons of Father Abraham? It, it, it all starts with God's promise to Abraham, and from there the Jewish people would come. But, but Joshua reminds God's people a really wild fact. Listen, look what he says about Abraham. That Abraham and his father and his family served other gods. You might not know this, but Abraham was an idolater. He worshipped pagan idols when the God, the one true God, Yahweh, spoke to him and says, leave this land and go to a land that I'm promising to you. And Abraham uproots his family based on a word from a God he didn't worship to follow this God. This is why we speak of people of faith. Abraham comes up because he's following a God he had never known. But he was so certain of this God that he uprooted his family and his life to follow him. And so begins the beginning of God's promises. To Abraham, he says, look at the stars and the heavens. I'm going to make your people like those stars. His first son is Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob and another son named Esau, twins. But God's promise went through Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the nation of Israel because Jacob's name gets changed to Israel and his 12 sons are the 12 tribes, Reuben and Simeon and all the other ones. And Joshua reminds them of this historical fact, but also then how those 12 tribes end up in Egypt as slaves. Joshua goes on to tell them in Egypt, God's people began to worship foreign gods. So not only did Abraham once worship gods, but even God's people confused the real God, while they were in Egypt. 
Joshua tells them, God brought you out of Egypt through Moses and he parted that Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptians and he brought you to the wilderness and he sustained you though you wandered for 40 years. And he tells them, and now here we are in the promised land, crossed the Jordan River, having taken down Jericho. And he tells them this in chapter 24, verse 13. This is God speaking through Joshua. He says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. God tells them, everything you have, I gave to you. Everything you have, I've given to you. You know, in Joshua's history lesson, I was wondering, why why does he do this for? And these people knew the history. They, They knew what had happened. But I think the answer comes in the following verses, why he tells them this history lesson. He says in verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods. Can you say put away the gods? Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Joshua makes this about a matter of God versus gods. Abraham worshipped lowercase g's, gods. The people in Egypt strayed away to worship lowercase gods. And now Joshua is telling them, you've got to choose what you're going to do here. Any guys tracking with March Madness? Any, any, any college basketball fans? Well, there's two out there, all right. Um, one thing that makes March Madness a lot of fun is that there are top-seeded teams that play against these underdog teams, and everyone expects the underdog to lose because they're bad. And the top-seeded teams are expected to win because they're really good. And every so often, you have these underdog teams that win, and what do they call them? A what kind of team? A Cinderella team. The one you don't expect who triumphs. And there's one such Cinderella team right now in the NCAA tournament, and they happen to be from Chicago, and it's Loyola. We're all rooting for them. No one's expecting them to be where they're at. And the reason it's so surprising is these are the underdogs and they're not expected to win against the elite teams, the powerhouse teams. What God is telling Israel and what Joshua's reminding them is, you were an underdog in these foreign lands. You, You were the nobodies. You weren't expected to succeed and every kind of success you've had is due to me. And on the other hand, on the other side of this illustration, God is the undefeated number one seed and all other gods pale in comparison to him. This is a matter of God versus the gods. And and Joshua is standing here towards the end of his life telling them in verse 14 to fear the Lord and to serve him saying, worship this God. Make him the pinnacle of your affections. Church family, the way you and I worship God is not just by singing words. We sing words throughout the week. But it's the posture of our heart that acknowledges the words we're singing. Are we acknowledging that God is the highest God? Are we living for him? Is our life arranged around him? What we worship is what consumes our minds, what is our greatest joy and pleasure. And Joshua's telling God's people, make God that. But then he tells them something, there's verse 14, which is going to get to the heart of what I want to talk about here. 
He tells them, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river. You hear what he's saying there? Put away the gods, which implies what? Those gods are there. Notice this. Joshua is here, over 100 years old, standing in front of people that God had done 10 plagues in Egypt, parted a Red Sea, fed them manna from heaven, birds came in the desert for meat, their sandals never wasted away, no army was able to stand against a slave nation with no battle training, the Jordan River was parted, Jericho's walls fall down, they begin to conquest the land, still have foreign gods among them. Proximity to the true God does not equate worship of the true God family. Just because they were there and saw what God did didn't mean they were worshiping him. The same is true for us. Proximity to God doesn't mean you're following him. It doesn't mean he is the one that you worship. And he tells them, put away the God's your father's had. I'm just looking at this. I'm thinking, what were they thinking? Put away the gods that your father's hand had. In verse 15, he says, if it is evil in your sight to serve the Lord to this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. He says, look, there's gods all around you. There's the past tense gods that your fathers worship and there's gods in the land that you walk in now. He said, put them away. Get rid of them. Throw them out. What Joshua is telling them here is that your heart is like a studio apartment. It's not meant for a roommate to be there. What Joshua is telling them is the Holy Spirit, when we put our faith in Jesus, takes residency in our heart, and he doesn't have a roommate. It's a maximum occupancy of one. And what Joshua is telling them here, who is going to be there? These foreign gods or the one true God? If you want the one true God, you got to evict the other gods. And so we look at this and we're saying, what, what were they thinking? Well, I think a lot of times when we think of idolatry, we think of stone and metal and gold and silver, which seems so foolish so archaic, so unintellectual, doesn't it? But what we see is that idols are far more than physical materials, but they're things that erect themselves in the souls of our lives. See, if we fast forward, and I want us to do this together, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's in the New Testament of the Bible. Would you fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? In the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Then you have the book of Romans and then 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul talks about the idols that the fathers worshipped. And these idols are not as clear maybe as we, or they're, they're, they're more of a heart matter than we think they are. What Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 10 is he's, he's telling God's people, 
fast forwarding some, some thousand years, and he's saying, look, the gods that, that the Jewish people worshipped in Egypt or in the wilderness are not much different than the gods you and I are tempted to worship even today. He tells them this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. He says, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's quoting the book of Exodus when God's people made a golden calf because Moses was taking way too long on the mountain. They're like, this dude's late. He might not be coming back. Who's the God that brought us out of Egypt? And they said, well, in Egypt, we remember there were golden gods. There were all kinds of gods. Let's make one of those for us here. And they said to Israel, behold, Israel, your God who brought you out of Egypt. And they bowed their knee to a golden calf. And it sounds crazy. But what Paul does here, notice, he tells us what, what's at the heart of their idolatry. He says, he says again, do not be idolaters, in verse 7, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Notice what Paul does here. He calls out their worshiping of a golden calf, but he's saying the idolatry that they had in their hearts was one to rise up and play and partake in sexual immorality. What Paul is saying here is that the idol of the hearts of God's people in that moment was more one of fulfilling the lustful desires they had to partake in sexual activity outside of God's confines of marriage. What we learn here then is idolatry is not simply a golden calf, but it's living out our sexual lusts and desires. And we can make an idol of intimacy. And God's people did it and Paul reveals how that was an idol. He goes on to speak of another idol. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpent. The story of the serpent is God's people complaining about the manna and the quails. There was a sense of entitlement. God, we deserve better than this. They made an idol of their entitlement, complained against God and Paul's saying entitlement could be an idol. It's not, it's not just immorality, but it, it could be entitlement. Because what entitlement does, it makes you the focal point of the world. Paul goes on to say, we should not be grumblers in verse 10, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. What he shows us is that they also grumbled. And they grumbled in the story that he's referring to when God's people first were supposed to go into the promised land and they saw these giant warriors, they panicked and said, why did God bring us here for us to die and for our little ones to die? They made an idol of their personal security. And they'd rather be secure than follow God. They'd rather be entitled than follow God. They'd rather be sexually immoral than follow God. And what Paul tells us here is that the gods of the fathers were gods of the heart, not just physical gods. Well, as we read this, if you're like me, I'm like, okay, I'm not as judgmental now about the idolatry as I was at first glance. 
How could they turn from their God? Well, the way that all of us turn from our God at different times in our lives. When we're seduced by our own desires, we're enticed by our own passions, and it's these things pull us away from God. And there lies idolatry. If we looked at the book of Judges, we also see there's an idol of self that continues to grow in God's people. And it says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's how they strayed away. Can you imagine that? Some of you are like, yeah, we're living in that world. Doing what's right in your own eyes. Whenever you're angry, I'm angry, so I'm going to punch someone. Seems right to me. And a lot of you are like, yeah, that, that has seemed right to me very many times. Or when you're jealous, I'm jealous and it seems right to me then to gossip about that person, to bring them down, to bring me up. Seems right in my own eyes. Or when I'm greedy, saying, you know, it seems right in my eyes to take this because I want it. That's the human heart. And at the core of that is idolatry. And so when Joshua looks at God's people and he's saying that your heart has a maximum occupancy of one, that the Holy Spirit doesn't need a roommate. He's reminding us that all of us are prone to wander into idolatry. Because the moment other things are the focal point of your life and the grand pinnacle of your affections, those things have become God things, making them a bad thing. That's idolatry. Joshua says, put away the God's as your fathers served. What I also see here is that some idols are not easy to part with. Hear that. Some idols are not easy to part with. I was thinking about that. Clearly, the God of Israel is far greater than anything they can bow their knee to. Clearly, the God we worship who became a man for us, who in our muck, in our sin, and completely unable to save ourselves, this God who came down to this earth as Jesus, fully God and fully man, subjecting himself to the limitations of skin and bones in order to redeem people and be true to his promises, to die for us and to raise for us, that God is clearly better than any of God we could worship. But why do we wander? Why do we turn away from our God? Clearly some idols are difficult to part with because I think this. I think sometimes the things in our lives, sometimes are from our past or, or, or sinful addictions in our present, we, we begin to think of them as a sort of security in our lives. They begin to define us. It's our identity. It's who I am. And even if we know it's wrong, we think it's who I am. I'm an alcoholic. I'm addicted to porn. I'm, I'm, I'm someone who's confused. I don't know who I am. That's my identity. And we make an idol of these things. And, and in a weird and twisted way, they can comfort us because it's what we know even though it's a slave master that'll kill you. And God's people here are holding tight to the things that are killing them. Joshua says, evict them. And for many of us, what we've got to do 
in so doing is look to the true identity that we have through Jesus when we put our faith in him. You're not an addict. You're a daughter of God. You're not an addict. You, you are a son of the king. You're not a confused person. You're a person who has a purpose because Jesus has given you one of eternal significance. So evict the lies. Evict the idols. Raise the white flag and say, God, I'm yours. Joshua looks at God's people and tells them this very thing. Idolatry separates us from the author of life mean it brings us death. And so Joshua's concerned here. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the Jordan River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your sight, he says in verse 15, to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Notice he says, if it's evil in your sight to serve the Lord, choose today whom you'll serve. Isn't that an interesting word? If it's evil in your sight to serve the Lord. The Hebrew word for evil is ra'ah. And that word comes from a root word, which means to spoil. Uh, the idea of something spoiling means it becomes a waste. It is worthless. It has no value. Therefore, it is something to be deplored. Uh, something, something to be resisted because then it's evolved into this word that is evil. And what Joshua's asking God's people, in your sight, is it worthless to serve God? I, is there value and serving God. Is it unpleasant though? Or is there joy in serving Him? Clearly, the people are there listening in, and they're just they're hearing this, this motivated speech by the old man in, among them. And he tells them then, choose this day whom you will serve. This choice is a decisive choice that you and I must make. It's, it's a choice of aligning our hearts. Cars were meant to go forward. You don't take a car from a dealership and its wheels are sideways because it's not aligned to do that. There is a decisive alignment with the vehicle to take you forward. And every so often, though, that decisive movement gets off line, which means then you need a wheel alignment to get it back on track. See, what, what Joshua is saying is there is a decisive moment in our lives where we've got to follow Jesus. And then there are daily decisions to follow Jesus. You might say that the big picture trajectory of your life is to follow the Lord. And for many of you, that's, that, that's a wonderful thing, isn't that? It's saying this is the direction I'm going. But, but for many of us, we acknowledge that every day I find my wheel alignment getting off. And I wake up in the morning and I got to make another choice. Today, who I will serve. There are some here today who've never made the large-scale alignment. And what God is calling you today is saying, is, is to trust in Him. It's to put your faith in Jesus, that He died for your sins, to turn away from that. And the sin is any way in our speech, actions, or in our hearts that we've rebelled against God. And all of us, from the day of our birth, have done that. But aligning your heart is surrendering, saying, God, I'm sorry, forgive me, I choose to follow you. And for those of us who've done that, and every day we wake up, you've got to just cry out to God, say, God, today, 
without your goodness, I would not believe in you. I, I wouldn't believe in you if you didn't save me. Align my heart to you. Align my heart to you. Joshua says, choose this day, and this day is every day, whom you will serve. He tells them whether the gods of their fathers or the gods in their current land. But then he ends in verse 15 with this, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua doesn't wait for a consensus after he makes the first statement. Choose this day whom you will serve. Let's take a vote now. Who wants to serve Molech? Who wants to serve Baal? We had elections this past week, and there were about 100 people who came to the brook to vote on the primary elections for our governor and other things. That's a beautiful thing about democracy, but Joshua's not about to be democratic here. He says, I don't care what you think. Me and my household will serve the Lord. Joshua says, you may disagree with me, but we will serve the Lord. Pressure may mount for me to do otherwise, but we will serve the Lord. I may be singled out in the classroom, in the break room, in the locker room, but we will serve the Lord. Relatives might mock me as the religious one in the family, but we will serve the Lord. The news might call you exclusive or an extremist. It might call the cross a crutch. It might say you're misguided or misinformed, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua looks at the people in there and says, I don't care what y'all think. Whether you serve the gods of our fathers or the gods of this land, I'm going to serve the Lord. My family will serve the Lord. This is not a matter of voting right now. I'm not going to take a consensus and we'll go with the majority. I'm going to serve the Lord and my family with me. Now clearly Joshua cares about their choice. He wants them to agree with him, but this is his choice no matter what they decide. Every day, Brooke family, you are confronted with that question. Whom will you serve? Whether it be your addictions of the past, whether it be the idols of yesterday or today, who are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? We know in this life there are battles. We know that idols are not easy to part with. We also know that sin lingers in this broken world, but we also know that through Jesus we are made new and are new creations. You've got to walk in that. And when you sin, you repent and you receive God's forgiveness. Say, God, I'm choosing you. I failed today, but Lord, your mercies are new every morning. I'm choosing you. I'm choosing you. See, God's acts toward us demand a response from us. Joshua responds, for me, my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And then in verse 9, uh, 16, then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. They heard him loud and clear. They're like, we ain't doing that, Joshua. We're, we're, we're right in line with you. 
they go on to say in verse 18, Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And you expect Joshua to be like, All right, let's do this. Look what he says. Look at the next words that come out of Joshua's mouth. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. You're like, what was that speech all about then? For he is a holy God and a jealous God. Joshua makes a provocative statement to drive home an important truth. See, he says, choose today whom you will serve, not who you claim to serve. We can all claim to serve the God of the Bible. But who will you serve? And Joshua's telling them here, you can't serve the Lord unless you lean on him completely. He's a holy God and he's a jealous God. He's a holy God, which is to say that he is perfect, perfect in his beauty, perfect in his attributes, perfect in his acts. God has never done wrong. And you stand as someone on the opposite side of that spectrum. And there is a paradox in many ways in the Christian faith, how us who are imperfect can have a relationship with a God who is perfect. How can that be? By our own strength, it can't. So Joshua's on point when he says, you can't serve the Lord. But then he tells him, and God's a jealous God. It's, it's not one of those things where you get to serve whatever God you feel like on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, then you change it up on Thursday, you want to a change of environment or something like that. God's a jealous God. He's the one true God. And what Joshua's telling his, uh, the, the people there, God doesn't have anyone next to him. His maximum occupancy is one. Maximum occupancy is one in your heart. So Joshua's on point when he says, you can't serve the Lord. Because he, what he wants them to experience is a complete, desperate dependency on God, saying, God, on our own, you are right. We can't serve you. We're going to fail. We're prone to wander. But through Jesus, we can hold fast to you based on your goodness. And this is the, the desire that Joshua has for God's people. And what they do is they reiterate their commitment. And then we read these beautiful words in verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the works that the Lord did for Israel. Beautiful words, huh? How God's people followed through on the promise they made in this last chapter of Joshua. Church family, this is what God wants for you and I. He wants a decisive choice that makes a difference in our lives in the grand picture alignment, and every day making decisive choices to follow our God and to evict the idols of our hearts. It's D-Day for you and I. Whom will you serve? As I read this conclusion to the book of Joshua, it ends on a high note. But it's hard when you turn to pages in your Bible sometimes. Because when you turn the Bible, when you turn your page, what book is there in your Bible? What's there? 
All right, it's not a rhetorical question. Judges. The book of Judges is a book about how God raised up a judge, a leader over his people, to deliver them from their enemies. And you say, wait, wait, what, what enemies? God gave them the promised land, right? They, 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 they removed all the Canaanites and the, the Hivites and Gergesites and all the other ites, right? Not quite. It said, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. But what about the children? What about the children? Let's look at Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, this is picking up on the speech we just looked at in Joshua chapter 24. The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him with the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. In verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How could that be? How could that be? How could it be that their children didn't know the works of God? There was a disconnect there somewhere. We're not given many details. But what we do know is that the children didn't follow. See, D-Day is not just something that affects your life, but affects future generations. It's not just a choice we make to follow God now, but also the choice we make to speak of God now. If the people in your workplace know that you're a good person, but they don't know that you love Jesus, you're just modeling a good person. If the people in your household see a devotion to be a part of church activities and they're assuming proximity equals worship, but they don't hear devotion Will it be passed on to them? There was a disconnect for God's people. And so you and I must choose this day whom we will serve. And tomorrow you must choose that day whom you will serve. And the same for Tuesday and Wednesday until you take your last breath. What God has shown Joshua that he's faithful to fulfill all his promises. God is faithful to deliver on everything he's promised. And he's faithful to make you strong and courageous to live for him as you surrender to him. What God's calling you and I today in response to his goodness to serve him, to worship him. Say, God, I belong to you. With all my failures and all my flaws, God, I'm yours. Forgive me for my sins, but let my life be aligned to you. Holy Spirit, you are the only one who occupies my heart. 
God, you are the only one who brings me ultimate joy and satisfaction. My dreams can't do that. My my spouse can't do that. My work can't do that. My degrees can't do that. My children can't do that. God, only you can bring joy in life. Choose this day, family, whom you will serve. But by God's grace, as for me and my household, I pray you say the same with me. We will serve the Lord. Father in heaven, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for this compelling book of Joshua which reminds us how frail on the one hand our lives are and also, God, how fierce and strong you are on the other hand. Lord, as we come before you, we ask God for your help, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are sorely aware of the idols in their hearts this morning, God. And they want, they want to be done with it, Lord. But on the other hand, they're so afraid because it's all they've known. Their addictions, their identities, their wounds even. Father, I pray that your spirit would do a beautiful work of healing today. God, we pray for a a special anointing to bring deliverance today, Lord. We, We pray that you would break chains today, God. We pray for an eviction notice to be sent today in men and women and youth in this room today, Lord. God, I pray, God, that as your spirit stands on the shores of our heart, that we would say, God, come and have your way. Sin has wreaked havoc occupying my life. These these idols have, have only brought more hurt and heartache. Spirit of God, come and break these chains. I want to serve you, oh Lord. Lord, I pray for a decisive alignment of heart today, God. I pray for that man today who's, who's maybe here right now hearing these words, God, and it's, it's you that's speaking. It's not me. It's you that's speaking to them, and, and, and he's afraid, Lord. I pray, God. I pray that you give him the courage, God, to say, God, I need you. Forgive me, deliver me, give me life through Jesus. I I pray for that woman today, God, who, who might be here right now. And the idols are so real. Lord, I pray that she would see, God, that you are a good God. You are not a brutish slave owner. But you are a God who brings liberation. For that youth, God, who's so afraid to to live for you, to serve you publicly. Grant them courage, God, no matter what classmates might say. God, may we as a church family rally around one another. When one is weak, may the others who are strong hold them up. Lord, we know that all that we are is due to your goodness. And just like you plucked Abraham out of his brokenness and his idolatry, you have plucked us out and saved us through faith in Jesus. And so, Lord, your goodness towards us does indeed demand this response. 
So Lord, I pray that we would respond this way today. Father, I pray that as our prayer team gets ready to be available, Lord, God, I pray that, that, that the person who, who wants prayer today, who just feels weighed down, God, who just needs to share with someone what they're going through or the fears of their hearts or maybe the ways that they can't see hope or maybe they want to share, God, their, their, their resolve to serve you. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't be timid, God, but that the first action of faith they take perhaps might be that first step forward to have someone pray for them. So Spirit of God, move among us here. Move in this place and be lifted high so that you, oh God, can get all the praise and all the glory as you alone deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand to our feet and prayer team, be available. Let's sing with conviction, family.